Welcome to the Kindness Collective Podcast. I'm your host, Patrick Harrington, where each week I'll be interviewing game changers who are up to good things in the world, supporting us with health and wellness resources, and ultimately how to live your kindest life. Let's get started. Hi, everybody. Patrick Harrington here with the Kindness Collective Podcast, and I am thrilled to have Jessica Herring here with me today. Jessica is a professional dancer, yoga teacher, just a thoughtful, wise woman that's in our community uh, of Kindness Yoga Studios, and I'm super happy to have you here. Thanks, Jessica. Thanks for having me. Yeah, absolutely. So um, let's see. I think the... The thing that really stands out about you to me is that I see you being just very thoughtful in the way that you move, in the way that you come into a space, and it almost feels like you're dancing just watching you walk into the studios. Has that uh, kind of always been some part of the way that you do things? Like, have you been a, were you born a dancer? Probably. Um, I started dancing mostly because I was moving around the house, knocking things over. (laughs) And so my mom needed to have me channel that energy. So I started taking, I guess, after school modern dance classes, maybe when I was about five. Okay. Um, And then I switched to more classical ballet when I was about eight or 10, somewhere in there. Uh Um, Studied that all through high school, went to college, went to New York, did that whole thing. Um, Did grad school and then moved home for a little bit. And, and what did you study in grad school? Was it dance-related? Mm-hmm. Yeah. I studied critical dance studies. So that's how dance operates in society and how we move through space, how it's actually an indicator of how people also move through space. So, for instance, for a long time, women were in one sphere, men were in another. And so you could look at different dance choreographies. You could look at how bodies were represented on stage, and that was an indication of how bodies were moving through society. Wow, that is fascinating. Yeah, it was cool. Holy cow. And what did you hope that that would translate into after completing? (laughs) Uh, Well, I was in a PhD program, so I Uh had assumed that I would be a professor and teach. Right. Um, About, I guess, two years into my program, I decided I didn't want to be a professor, so I just completed with a master's. Okay, wow. So teaching was was a track for a while. Teaching was a track, um, and on that level, it just seemed at the time for me that it was way too stressful to constantly having to to publish, to constantly have relevant work in order to keep your job or progress in your job. Right. Yeah. So, I can get that. Yeah. It, uh, it maybe is a different different focus than why a lot of teachers got involved, I imagine. It seems like that. It's more about the output versus the process, and I didn't resonate with that at the time. Uh-huh. So. And so um, so you, you graduated, moved back home as home, Denver? Did, are you a native? I'm a native. Hey, <laughs> shout out. Amazing. 
I think you're one of like seven, eight in the state. No, just kidding. Uh, two natives sitting together. Isn't that nice? Um, mm. Cool. And so you came back to Denver and this was after doing kind of your big, would you call it big professional um, shot in New York? Um, I guess so. Yeah. I moved to New York after I completed my undergrad. I worked for seven different companies. There is a freelance dancer, and then I was also an arts administrator for a lot of the major arts organizations in New York. Mm. Um, finishing that, I applied to grad school, went to grad school, did that whole thing. But in between, I was self-producing my own work, um, both dance, somewhat theater, somewhat visual art. So I did all of that thing, or all of those things. Wow, that's cool. I'm curious, uh, what year was that? Um, I went to grad school in 2012. In 2012. Yeah. So how did you, how did you, um, how did you produce that? Did you have, did you use like a cell phone or what, what was the medium? <laughs> I had a digital camera. It was a Kodak. Okay. I uploaded the files onto my Mac. I uh-huh. used iMovie and I edited things down. And then at that time I had a Vimeo account. And so I just posted so many different things on Vimeo. Um, for the live performances, I would rent out theaters. I'd rent out um, studio spaces to rehearse, to perform them. I did all the marketing. I did all of the actual costume concept. I did the text that we had to write or that the performers had to speak. Um, yeah, I basically did all of that. And then the fundraising, of course, to pay for it. That's amazing. It was fun. Wow. One of the things that I'm, that I'm hearing out there for dancers or yoga teachers is that I just got a glimpse into the hustle yeah. That is Jessica. Well, when she when she's when she's wanting something, when she's going for something. Um, where do you think that work ethic came from or or how did how did it show up? Cuz there's a lot of people that would just keep trying for auditions and stop and you know, if that wasn't working out, they would just quit and they would, you know, go get a regular job or something. But what I hear is that you started to self-produce as an antidote for uh, a very challenging competitive New York dance scene. Um, I think in many respects, dance was my first love, uh-huh. you know, so it was something that brought me so much joy, even when it was causing me pain. And I think it was something that I, I couldn't live without. Mm. That's awesome. Um, uh, dance as a first love. And you'd mentioned something when we were chatting earlier about, uh, dance that, that the environment um, of being a professional performer is really a lot based in um, being good enough to be chosen. Yeah. Yeah, I can imagine that's that plays into a lot of people's uh, insecurities. And how did you deal with, with that idea that you have to be good enough to be chosen to perform for people? I chose myself. That's why I started doing the self-produced works. Um, Prior to that, all of my friends had danced for much bigger companies, and we'd all moved to New York at about the same time. And it was, for me, a very heartbreaking experience to be told, you're good, but you're not quite good enough, or you don't look like so-and-so, so you can't fill their part, or this is not quite right, or any other myriad of things that people would say including you're not thin enough or you're not this shape or you're not that so it just at some point I just had to 
for my own safety, my own sanity. I had to do that for me. Yeah. That, that's a, to me, that feels like a very evolved perspective. Mm-hmm. Um, choosing yourself. It's one of the things as a parent, I'm, I am trying to inspire in my girls that it's good for them to say no when they don't want to do something, even if the rest of the kids or even if a teacher is asking, even if I'm asking. The other day we had Dabney, our five-year-old, at gymnastics and Big Sis got asked to audition for the competitive team. Mm-hmm. And Baby Sis, you know, has a hard time letting go of my leg to go out into the to the gym area. And finally I just said, you know, baby, are you... Are you done with gymnastics? Do you not want to do it anymore? And she just shook her head, no. And I said, okay, thank you for for t- saying no. You know, that's the hardest thing. And inside of what I hear you doing as a dad, um, I'm like, oh, I hope my girls can choose themselves. Um, what would you say to dancers who are maybe not self-producing, but are, but are in that rigmarole right now or in uh, yoga teachers that, that just graduated and want to start teaching somewhere, but they're not quite to that place where they're getting picked up by studios. What would you say in terms of what happened for you? Um, I guess the first thing to remember is why you got into it the first, in the first place. Mm. What is it that keeps drawing you back to dance, back to yoga, back to any of the, quote, amateur hobbies one may have? And if you can tap into that, you can realize that that success isn't necessarily being equated with some external thing. It can be something that you're doing wholly on your own. Uh And if you can come back to that... You can choose yourself, and regardless of what's happening in the external world, it doesn't have as big of an impact on you. Yeah. So. Yeah, I love that. I think it's so often, um, because we spend so much of our time working, we have to solve for that rent, food, mortgage, you know, basic needs program of paying for life. Yeah. That sometimes it just, there's that the idea of, of choosing a passion um, off to the side, um and doing it just for the joy of it, uh, I think it could create a lot of a lot of freedom. Um, Richard Freeman, one of the one of kind of the the big teachers, yoga teachers in the United States, he's always he had a studio up in Boulder for many years, and he always said to his teachers, "Do not teach yoga as a profession. Teach two classes, and then have a job." And I, I, um, what do you think? What do you think about that advice? I'm starting to think that's true. Yeah. Um, it just takes out your own ego from it. It takes out the worry. It takes out the pressure that you have to put on to your passion. Mm-hmm. Um, and this is one of those things that I've been trying to understand that your dharma, whatever you're here to do, doesn't need to be the way in which you make money. Uh-huh. It can be something entirely different as long as you're aware of the fact that, you know, artha is the Sanskrit word for your means to make a living, yep. your artha can be separate from your dharma. They don't have to be one and the same for your dharma to be your dharma. Yeah, right. And do you think that if the pressure was off yo- teaching yoga um, as a means for creating your artha, would it change the way you teach? I don't think it would change the way I teach personally. I teach whatever is of interest to me. <laughs> uh-huh, Sure. 
Um, but I do think it would change the pressure and the stress that I put on myself about how I need to show up in the larger yoga community. Like there are certain aspects of the social media aspect of the profession that at times just seem exhausting. Um, there are certain aspects of just the business side of yoga that seem way too exhausting and the practices itself can sometimes get lost. Yeah. Yeah. I agree. I, uh, it's funny, we, we just hired a new COO, Colin, and we were sitting around with the directors and uh, myself the other day, and he said, something's, something's not working here, guys. I uh, started working for a yoga organization, and I stopped practicing <laughs> because it's like we were, and everybody started laughing. I said, I know, I know. And I myself in, this, in, the, in these last few weeks haven't been practicing like certainly like I want to. Um, and that's the business of delivering yoga, teaching yeah. it, but not necessarily having the space or the prioritization to, to take it on. But that might be what causes the burnout. Your mm. initial flame that came up that you were super excited about sharing with the world gets diminished because you can't even honor your own practice. Right. Yeah, so. for sure. For sure. Um, so you, you came back to Denver, that was 2012, you said? 2014. 2014. Okay. And then had you always practiced yoga? I had actually. Um, I got into yoga haphazardly. Uh-huh. Most modern dancers have done yoga before they've ever actually taken a yoga class because a lot of modern dance uses many of the shapes. It uses many of the concepts. Like I remember being in the sixth grade at the Denver School of the Arts and learning about how to light my own inner fire while we were doing an imagery exercise on the floor. Um, Cool. But I didn't officially take a yoga class until I was, I think, a senior in college. And it wasn't called yoga. Hmm. It was called performance elements because I went to a liberal arts school, so they couldn't (laughs) call it yoga. Why couldn't they call it yoga? Religious or something? I don't think it had to do with the religion. I think it just wasn't considered an actual academic class. Discipline, sure. Mm -hmm. Huh. And what did you think? Do you remember that first class? I don't. I honestly took it because all the cool people were taking it. Like every senior prior had rearranged their schedule to take this class. So I didn't even know what it was, but I was like, I'm going to take this class. Everybody's taking it with the cool professor, Miss Fernandez or Dr. Fernandez, Uh and I want to go take it too, you know? Right. I'm, I'm going to put that in the show notes for everybody. If you want to rem- be remembered, cool people take yoga. <laughs> That's going to live on. I'm going to underline it. Um, and what did you, what did it, so, but it's, it, did it, did you get bitten? Did you get the bug? I did. Um, the only thing I really remember about that first class is we were on a stage, which was ironic. Uh-huh. The stage lights were still on. And I remember she said something about the only thing you have to do is breathe. Oh. That's it. You know, and then she, of course, had all these crazy postures that we were supposed to be doing. And most obviously dancers could easily do them. But um, I remember struggling through headstand and I remember her saying that we needed to just breathe. Hmm. What did you what did you make of that? What did you what did that mean to you? Just breathe. I mean, aren't I breathing right now? That actually was relevant to me as a dancer, because a lot of times when you're on stage, your heart rate is so elevated that your breath is really shallow. So you can like do this amazing thing on stage and then get off stage and suddenly be winded. Right. Um, so for me, it was very helpful. Mm. And I feel like the first four or five years of my practice, that's all I really focused on mm-hmm. was just breathing. Yeah. So 
That's interesting. And so you caught the bug. And then when did you decide that you wanted to teach yoga? This is another haphazard story. Yeah. I was in grad school and as part of my fellowship package, I was teaching intro to dance and it was basically a survey course for any individual who wanted, I'm not going to say this, but an easy A. I had a bunch of math students in there. I had a bunch of writing students in there. I had a bunch of science students in there. These were all seniors who needed an arts credit to complete their degree so they could graduate and they figured dance was the easiest way to do it. Hmm. And so I taught that class, I want to say the term was 18 weeks or something, Mm -hmm. and we got past midterms. I'd made them do all these crazy things for midterms, and then they came in and they're like, we're just so tired, Jess. We want to do something else. We don't really want to do anything. I was like, well, okay, I'll teach you some yoga. And so I just taught them what I had been doing. Mm. And they're like, you should teach that. You're better at that. (laughs) I was like, oh, thanks. Um, So... That's how I first got into teaching yoga. Okay. Yeah. Without a license. Without a license. I know I shouldn't say that. Yoga police. (laughs) Um, And then you chose to take a training. Um, I took a training. So that was probably fall of 2013 that that happened. I finished with my master's in 2014. Moved to Colorado randomly, haphazardly got a dance job with a Hanacon dance company. And signed up for a training at Kindness while I was on my year-long contract. Mm, So I thought it was just going to be for me to deepen my own practice. practice. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, who were your leads? Just curious. Uh, Jenny Biddle. Uh Uh-huh. Jack was a junior lead. Yeah. Uh, Lindsay Gonzalez. And I should remember this. Jenny, Jack, Lindsay. Maybe that was it. Uh, I'm going to say that. Yeah. Jenny, Jack, Lindsay. Perfect. Yeah. Great. And thank you to anyone else that was there. Well, I know Kristen was also <laughs> doing a junior lead. She taught yeah. us prenatal or something. And uh-huh. Jeremy Wolf was there at some point. But yeah. Cool. You had a smattering of some greats. That's awesome. It was awesome. I remember uh, the first time you came into the studio and you weren't practicing with a mat, which is kind of a signature signature thing of yours. Can you talk a little bit about how you, you practice yoga without a mat? Um, do you want the story as to why it happened? Yeah. yeah. Mostly because I was lazy. Okay. I was living in New York, didn't want to carry my mat to and from my job, to and from my rehearsals, to and from dance classes. So I just decided one day not to bring it with me. Um, most modern dance classes are taken on wooden floor. And because we're often doing half those shapes anyways, I figured it wouldn't be a problem. That different. Yeah. And... What I ended up noticing is prior to that, I'd had a lot of carpal tunnel issues. My wrists were always killing me. Mm -hmm. And once I stopped using a mat, that went away. My body had to work a lot harder to stabilize my joints so I couldn't slide. That it took away a lot of those injuries. Wow. Love that. Yeah. And so um, one teacher that I, my first kind of major teacher that I took with would say, you should be able to practice on ice. Yeah. You're drawing in so much. Does that is that what exactly. you're talking about? So that so, if you're in a down dog, uh, the the sensation of stability you can't wait you can't wait into the grip of the mat. You actually have to draw back. Is that true? Yeah, you have to draw back, but you also have to push out in the right way. So it it definitely increases your sense of proprioception, and it makes all the muscles work in such a way that you actually feel like it's all integrated. Hmm. So. 
Wow, I could see a mass defection from mat use after this. It's hard. I'll bet. It's hard. Well, sometimes I'll practice on a little slippery mat, slipperier mat. I don't know if that's a word, slipperier. But it um, it definitely causes like a lack of confidence because I'm just not used to it, right? Yeah. I don't know if, if I take a long stance, yeah, I can't just dump the weight to the edges. No. You have to draw in. I like that idea. That's really, really a draw to the midline out of necessity. Out of necessity, but it also helps you do the spiritual thing of drawing to your core. Uh, that's so good. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so uh, at some point you stopped dancing. Yep. Uh, or not stopped dancing, but stopped performing. Performing. Yes. Yeah. So talk a little bit about how was it to, to make that decision? What made you make that decision? Um, age made that decision. Injury made that decision. So I performed last performance dance performance was last August by last October. I was having a lot of hip pain, Mm. um, ended up getting an MRI confirmed that I have a torn labrum. Doctors don't know if it was too many years of extreme asana, if it was too many years of classical ballet, if it was just a genetic predisposition because I have hypermobile joints. Um, so any or all of those could have caused that. Yeah. And is that a pretty common dancer injury? It is actually. Um, it turns out, I've been learning a lot about this, 70% of the population has a labral tear. Wow. Adult population, not even just dancers. 70% of the population has a labral tear. The difference huh. is not everyone is symptomatic. Hmm. Podcast audience, raise your hand if you have a labral tear. Thank you. <laughs> um, well, that's, that's interesting. Yeah, I wonder, um, how did you, did you, you didn't have a clue that that's what it was? I mean, now that you know that that's what it is, can you pinpoint where the discomfort is and that's where your labral tear is? No. Huh. So my labral tear is on the anterior superior part of my hip. So for those of you that have no idea what I just said, it's basically on the top part of my hip, okay. a little bit in of my um, hip bone. Yeah. My pain is closer towards my pelvis. Interesting. And it has to do... So it's all referral? Referral. And so that's why I've been seeing a pelvic floor therapist and she's been working with me on that. And it turns out that a lot of hip and low back pain actually comes from a pelvic floor dysfunction. Interesting. Yeah. And so what does what does a pelvic floor therapist solve for? <laughs> well, she solves for a bunch of different things, but um, I'm working with her specifically to learn to relax. To learn to relax. Yep. Would would she mind if we mention her in these Oh, notes? no, she's amazing. Okay. Christina, I want to say McEwland. I can send you her name so you can spell that correctly. Christina? Yeah. Mick something. McEwland. McEwland. Uh, she's at UC Health, the Stedman Hawkins Clinic. Great. Totally in love with her. I feel like she she actually used to practice at kindness. Oh, great. Yeah. Um, and just very knowledgeable. Very knowledgeable. I, I have enjoyed working with her quite a bit. Yeah. Cool. And you've tried some other therapies um, mm-hmm. just to... to keep your body rolling along. Um, what are some of the favorites that people might not have heard of before? Um, Klein technique is probably one people haven't really heard about. That's something that's very specific to the modern dance or the downtown modern dance scene in New York. And if you have no idea what downtown modern dance is, that's basically release oriented. Uh-huh. There are people that 
their center of gravity is so strong that they can throw their entire body off balance, but still remain on balance because it's so integrated. Huh. What do you call that? Um, downtown. Downtown? Downtown modern dance. It's typically called release. Um, but it's just, it's a lot of fun in order to throw your body around like that. You have to have this really integrated center. Wow. Yeah. That sounds amazing. Oh, it's fun. And you mentioned uh, you had a spell with Feldenkrais. Yep. So I constantly get injured. So one of my injuries, I couldn't do too much. So I fell in love with um, Susan Klein's work, Um, Barbara Mahler. They used to be partners, but different takes on the same ideas. Uh And then uh, Feldenkrais, because these were the things that I could do to repattern my body to perform more efficiently. And a lot of these injuries that I had by learning to repattern how I was showing up in my body helped resolve a lot of the issues of them or in and of themselves. That seems like a lot of people could use that. Yeah. The Feldenkrais. It's great, but it's just really slow and detail oriented. Uh huh. So you want to have some patience or you want to be in enough pain to take the time. Yeah. Something like that. Do you have somebody here in town that you go to for that? I don't. Um, but when I was dancing for Hannah, uh, Hannah Khan, she had a friend who taught Feldenkrais and would come in and teach it to us. Uh-huh. So it's definitely one of those things that athletes that are high performers enjoy doing it. Dancers enjoy doing it because it repatterns the smallest movement to make the bigger movements more seamless. Repatterns the smallest movements to make the bigger movements more seamless. Correct. Wow. That's awesome. It's awesome. I love it. That sounds really cool. Maybe that's why. Maybe that's why you walk the way you walk when you, or way, the way you move when you move. Do you think that all of these kind of things have kind of translated into these day to day practices? Huh. I would think so. I mean, one of the principal techniques of Klein is just walking. She has a very specific way in which you're supposed to walk. Huh. That's interesting. I just sat up straighter. If you want to know how that happened, really good. Um, what are kind of some of your day-to-day stuff as a, as a high performer and somebody that really has, has used her body to a high degree? What are things that you do daily or weekly that, or, or that, or that you'd like to remember to do daily if you don't, you know, what would be your ideal kind of high performing schedule for you or maintenance? Well, right now I'm doing pretty much nothing because I've been encouraged to relax. Oh, so relaxing. Yep. Relaxing is a high performance strategy. It is because I carry a lot of all the things that I've done have made my body when I perform very efficient. It's almost like a machine that can just do all these things very succinctly because I've spent so much time mentally, physically preparing to do them. Yeah. That there's a lot of residual tension there. Mm. So now I'm trying to go the opposite way because that's apparently one of the things that contributes to pelvic floor dysfunction. Is tightness. Tightness. Yeah, right. Unnecessary tension that's all over the body and because of the fascia, it connects through there. Oh, isn't that amazing? Mm. Unnecessary tension. Yeah. So if you were to go back to being a dancer today and you could tell um, Jessica from the beginning at at whatever stage you feel like she would have been receptive. Like, like if you could have been a mentor when she was in college or something or first studying dance, what, what advice would you give her as a young dancer about 
all that you've learned and, and what would you say? Don't worry so much. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> Don't worry so much. Yeah. I mean, because I was taking a course the other day about stress and psychology. And uh-huh. one of the interesting things I found out was that stress starts in your brain. Uh-huh. And then some type of neurochemical thing is sent all the way through your body, and that causes the muscles and the organs to respond accordingly to whatever you message you sent from your brain. Uh-huh. So stay out of your head. Yeah. Right? <laughs> yeah. Easier yeah. said than done. Yeah. And so do you have um, practices that support you with that? Do you meditate? I meditate every day. Do you? Um, sometimes it's a struggle, but that's what it looks like on that day. Um, and what do, what do you mean when you say that sometimes that's a struggle? Meaning there are times that I can sit down in my seat and whatever the task is that I'm supposed to put my mind on, I can stay right there. My mind doesn't wander. I can just commit to whatever that thing is. What I've been working with recently is something that I read in Be Here Now, which is literally mm-hmm. to ask yourself, where are you and when is it? You pay attention to your breath, and whenever the mind wanders, you let it do that, but then you ask, where are you? So that it brings you back to the present moment, and when is it? Idea being that very often we're ruminating about the past or projecting into the future, but none of that's right here or now. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I've, I've, one of the things that that reminds me of is this um, meditation perspective that says that the mind is like a, a little puppy. And that um, you put the little puppy, it's like training a little puppy. You exactly. put the you put the puppy on a piece of paper, the puppy gets off and walk away. You put the puppy back on the piece of paper, it gets up and walk away. You put the puppy back, like that. You keep putting the puppy back. And just like it wouldn't make sense and, and PETA would probably come after you if you yelled at the puppy, if you abused the puppy, it doesn't make sense when your mind wanders to get mad at yourself. But people do it all the people time. People do. We, we do it. And if we, if we take it out of the context of meditation, it's just like, God, why did you say that? You're so stupid. <laughs> that was the dumbest thing. Or that was a dumb question or, or whatever. Yeah. And um, we, if we, I think if we treated our mind more like that little puppy and just saw how innocent it is, uh, it might go, might go easier, huh? I think so. Yeah. Um, and it definitely sets you up to do some of the more, I guess, complicated or involved meditations that can come a little later in your sadhana. Sadhana. Say what that is for people out there. Sadhana is generally referred to as your practice, whether it's your spiritual practice or however you're engaging with your yoga. Uh-huh. And so sadhana, that's the spiritual practice in relationship to yoga specifically, or is sadhana in relationship to life? Life. Yeah. 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 And I, I asked that because, uh, you know, the yoga practice and meditation practice, you could bring your sadhana, your spiritual life as a Catholic, as a Jew, as an agnostic, as yeah. a Buddhist, it, it all can filter through the experience of asana, meditation, breath work, um, and so uh, I love the universality, even though it's a foreign word, sadhana, you know, it's not something that we're used to saying in English at all. It's a Sanskrit word. Yeah. Um, well, what, um, when you think of all the places that you could work and 
spend time teaching. What is it about kindness, the concept in general, and how it's how it's the the standard for our studios? What does kindness What does kindness represent for you? How does it How does it support you as a teacher? Or what do you want to say about the word kindness? Um, I think it's a call to action. It's really, in some instances. A challenging thing to do because we can externally be kind to others, but oftentimes we're struggling to be genuinely kind to ourselves. Uh-huh. Um, so for me, it's that. It's like, how can I show up every day and do the best that I can and offer that, whatever I'm discovering to my students, and how can I be kind to myself in the process of that? How can I be kind to them as they're going through their journey? How can I be kind to my mom and my partner and my friends and everybody else when they're being human? <laughs> right, right. <laughs> um, and I, I think it's more of a call to action. It's very easy to say that we're all kind, but it's a lot harder to commit to the actual action. And have you found that you are gaining momentum with it? I think so, but I, I feel like it's not a linear process. Uh-huh. Um, I don't think it's a linear process. I think sometimes we build ourselves up or actually, I guess maybe it's more like a side wave that's gradually going up. You know, you, you accomplish a little bit and then you fall off the cliff and then you come back up a little higher than you were before. And then you come back down a little and it's just constantly going up that way. It's not this straight line where you're like, yes. Right. Right. Um, And that's the hard part. (laughs) Hmm. Yeah, I my philosophy generally on life is continually create better problems, mm, I like and that. and I and that's that kind of roller coaster that's constantly going a little bit higher than it did after the last trough or after the last low, and at one point the trough is you know last year or ten years ago's old high, yeah, and now that's oh gosh now. You know, I don't have problems with that at all. Um, and that used to be the victory. Mm. Uh, but now it feels like the low point. Yeah, it's really cool. Um, so where can people know about you, Jessica? You teach yoga for kindness. I teach yoga for kindness. Okay. Um, anywhere else? No, not right now. I'm one of your teacher trainers, so I do that. Uh-huh. And then I offer my own personal things that I do outside of kindness. Okay. But for the most part, I'm just at kindness. And those personal things you offer outside of kindness, is that like private yoga sessions and therapy or something? Uh, they're private yoga sessions. And then they're workshops that often have to do with the philosophy and how you can integrate that into your life. Okay. Like coaching? is mm-hmm. Kind of. Uh-huh. Kind of. It's more like we'll take some philosophical or philosophical texts. Maybe it's the Yoga Sutras. Maybe it's the Bhagavad Gita. Maybe it's something like that. And then we look at what it's actually saying uh-huh. and how that becomes applicable for us as householders, as people that actually aren't monks sitting in a cave yeah. just meditating all day. Mm. Um, and then there are a variety of things that we do in order to help make that, I guess, something that's attainable for you mm-hmm. so wow that sounds nice i like them they're fun yeah that's great and so if somebody was interested in knowing more about those do you have a facebook i have a website a website what's your website i'm very anti-social media i have one outlet okay um my website is the one beautiful you.com the one beautiful you.com yep. that is a great name isn't it because yeah. there's only one beautiful you 
That's so true. Dot com. Nailed it, too, <laughs> by the way. Good work. Um, it's been a pleasure, Jessica. And um, I can really see how people that have a dance background and that have transitioned into yoga are really going to relate to your story and how you got here. And that it's a cool way to kind of keep moving and maybe move in a more therapeutic way. And um, I love your classes. I don't get into them as often as I'd like, but they're awesome. And so please come and see Jessica at Kindness. And uh, I look forward to seeing you again. Thank you. Yeah, thank you.